Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast, where our mission is to provide woodworking education for all levels and all types of woodworkers. To find out more about the Modern Woodworkers Association, visit us on the web at modernwoodworkersassociation.com or follow us on Twitter at MWA underscore national. Now to our host, Tom Iovino, Diami Palatki, and yours truly, Chris Adkins. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the 30th edition of the Modern Woodworkers Association online discussion of all things woodworking. You may notice this is Diami Plotki speaking. Our esteemed shop monkey, Tom Iovino, was unable to make it because tomorrow he's going to be teaching more people how to stay safe in a hurricane. So you have to bear with me this episode. Um, tonight I have, as always, Mr. Chris Adkins, and our special guest who's going to be filling in for the entire episode in Tom's absence is Mike Pekovic of uh, Fine Woodwork. Thanks so, for having me, guys. Go Thanks for coming on, on Mike. Appreciate it. We're going to jump right into it. We're trying to trim the intro, and I'm going to babble on here a little bit more to give Chris something to edit out later. Uh, but we're going to jump right into what's in the shop. So, Chris, what's going on on your bench right now? Come on, Diami. Would I ever edit you guys out? <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> Maybe. I edit my own I just self. just want to make you work. You know, I edit my own self also because I, I hear myself, gosh, I sound like such a hick. Yeah, that's got to come out. <laughs> so, um I am, I finished up, um, finished up the chisel cabinet and got that on the wall, got all the finish on it. And, and I've been working on, uh, working on a humidor. Um, uh, that's been a cool little project. I, I took, um, it's Spanish cedar on the inside and then the outside, uh, I think I may have talked about this a little bit last time, but I've got the, the veneer on it. I used, um, uh, I used uh, a locust. I had a really old locust post that was probably, Two and a half inches thick by about eight inches wide, and wow. I sliced it into end grain veneer and cleaned oh, the edges cool. up just enough to fit, and it's really cool looking. It, it turned out awesome. So I've, I've got the whole veneer on all the sides, and then because the veneer is a little weak, and I cut it a little thicker because I was concerned about the, the end grain on it. Right. I uh, I ripped the corners off, so I left like a three eighths rip all the way around the corners of it, and then put a piece of three eighths uh, winging on the corners to basically edge band it and. Uh, Oh, the, nice. the locust has got a dark, kind of deep, rich color to it, so it, it's a real nice contrast with the uh, with the wing beyond. So it's real pretty. That's cool. I love that end grain look. Matt Kenny has scooped around with that a little mm-hmm. bit. We had a piece on the back cover a while back where a guy did a whole cabinet with end grain. It's really stunning stuff. It's amazing how much, um, you know, just the look. I mean, you you don't expect some of the, the look that it has. And just, you know, you, you think of the end grain, a lot of times it's just kind of, you know, just strawy looking, just the, the end, but uh, it can have some stunning effects if it's, if it's the right word on it. Very cool. And I'm a little slow to the draw here, but for anyone who does happen to be watching, oh, here's a picture of the cabinet, or of the humidor, rather, excuse me. Now, you built it as a box, and then you're cutting it open. Is that right, Chris? Yes, I built so it. So in uh, this, mm-hmm. I see a little horizontal line in this picture, but that's not a cut. That's just a, a mark in the end grain, right? Or have it you is. cut it open? No, I've not cut it open. Uh, a matter of fact, it's I, I actually, the cedar box is all six sides completely um, put together, so it's not cut open at all. And then the ingrain is applied with it still completely together. The corner was applied with it. And then because it's ingrain and, and it was such an old piece, I, I didn't want to take all the, the um, you know, you've got some of the fissures and stuff in the edge of the board where it's just so old. I didn't want to lose all that because it does kind of kind of crack into the center of the board just a little bit. So I only planed enough off just to square the corners up so they fit tight together. Um, so after it was all put together and it's still not cut open, I've epoxied the whole thing to fill in any of those little little cracks and fissures and stuff through it. And then now I'm going to slice it open next. And then, and then after that, I'll just put a finish on it. I've got some hinges that go on there. And then I'll line the inside of it again with more seed. Oh, okay. It's nice. I like how you uh, bookmatch that end grain and how it wraps from front across the top. Very, very cool. Yeah, and it's and it's actually I, I bookmatched it to where the the grain turns to the center, and then for the two outside ones, I I flipped them out the other way, so so they bookmatch the opposite directions on it. So all the grain lines up like four pieces. It goes across the side of it, across the top. So. Awesome. Yeah, turn it kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, it's really neat. Can I ask you a question about the chisel cabinet before we move on? I want to make a rasp cabinet, mm-hmm. but I've realized that you can't hook the handle of the rasp the way you can hook the handle of your chisels. Right. So I was just, I was thinking the other day, what am I going to do to to hang the rasp? And if I have to actually rest them on something, or can I hang them? Either one of you have a, 
good way to, to hang it when I can't quite grab underneath the handle the way you can with a chisel. Hmm. So are you rasped? Are you are you rasped? Have you got rasped with the handles on there? I mean, I guess what do you? What yeah, all my rasps have handles. I've got the arus arus. I I could never pronounce right. these things. I've got them. No, it's I, unpronounceable. Yeah, I've got those French ones that are really yes. nice and expensive, and I've got some from the Czech Republic that are not so nice and not so expensive. Um, and what I find is that the way the I, I guess it's still a tang attaches to the handle. There's just not that overlap, the hook underneath. The handle is almost the same diameter as the top of the rasp. So I'm thinking I need to have the bottom rest on something. But, you know, just aesthetically, I wanted all the handles to line up, and they're all different lengths. So I'd have to make stops that are up and down to make them line up. It doesn't really matter if they line up, I guess. But I, I thought it would be nice to have them hang rather than, than rest. This is really a first-world problem that I want my rasps to be lined up properly inside the case. Oh, that sounds the opposite. What if you turn the handles down and just put the handles like in low and dense, kind of leaned up so that, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a way just to line it up that way. Because, but I mean, even, to be honest, even in that chisel cabinet, I put the bar across where the, they hang. I don't know if I pulled that up or not. Yeah, give me a second. You've got to. Just keep talking. Um, there's, when, even when they hang, even with like the different, within the same manufacturer of chisels, they still don't hang the same because, you know, they've got different <laughs> diameter, you know, tangs and stuff. So they don't line up perfect. And that, at first I was like, well, I don't like that. I want them all to line up just, but it doesn't really matter if they, if they hang. So you just need to buy matching chisels. Uh, well, if you had a, a shelf for your rasp and you just had, um, you, you just ripped sort of uh, slots partially into the shelf, would the, uh, rasp be able to slide in sort of sideways? into the slot and still be supported by the handle above the shelf. Oh. Uh, probably. Uh, I need to uh, I need to play with that a little bit more. And I'm sorry, guys, but my screen share is not working okay. right now. But I did pull up the cabinet. Um, uh, but, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good idea, Mike. I, I could – I'll have to look at them and see if I twist them on the side if they're going to – if they'd be able to still catch the same one. Yeah. Um, but well, without, without going into too long on just my stuff, um, one thing that was kind of cool about that um, – the, the chisel cabinet was was um I, I wanted the door uh, to shut and and latch but I didn't want to put a latch on the inside of it so I built it kind of like a chronop style where you've got the upper and the the lower um, piece that kind of comes out and flush with the outside face of the door right and the doors overhang the sides but are inset top correct okay. yes yes and so what I did to to make it latch was I took um took a, a like a little wing and, and cut it into a half inch dowel and then I trimmed the probably I don't know about a half inch on the on the front of it down to a three eighths dowel. Okay. And then I drilled a three eighths hole all the way through the the bottom kind of lip on there and okay. put and then drilled a half inch hole just a little ways up through it so sure. that it, it kind of set up in there and the button came through. Right. And then I I took an ink pen and and took the spring out and. Drill a little <laughs> hole and put the spring inside there, and then put a plug in the bottom, so that literally, you know, you it works now. You know, it's a ball catch essentially. And, oh, that, uh, that, that's a good idea. <laughs> it was a whole lot for just this, and it's so funny because you can't see hardly anything because it's just this little black button sticking up. But uh, it worked perfect. It was, you know, I was I was pleased with with how well it ended up working. But uh, that's awesome. That's a great trick. But everyone else will look at it and be like, it just looks like a little button to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, but, but yeah, woodworkers, yeah, tell the woodworker to push it, and they'll like push that all day long trying to figure out what's going on. In That's there. right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, so what, um, Mike, what do you, what have you got going on? Well, I'm actually, um, Tiami's offered to uh, allow me to uh, hoist a glass of wine or a bottle of beer while I'm in the shop. I'm actually surrounded by hundreds of uh, sample boards covered in water locks. In my shop, so I'm getting ready for a finishing demo this weekend. So basically, I'm just getting a good high off my water students <laughs> in here. I'm just counterbalancing that with some coffee. So, um, in terms of recent projects, I just finished up a, a traveling toolkit because I am doing a lot of teaching and stuff, and I'm always hoisting my my tools around in a canvas tote and they're banging around. So I made a little uh, a little travel kit just for. Um, obviously not every tool I own, but just for sort of my essential travel kit for what I have with me teach or demonstrate. But that, that's a fun project. What size is that? What's the uh, kind of dimensions? Uh, it's uh, it's about 12 inches deep. It's about 
just about 12 inches high, maybe about, uh, let's call it maybe 21 inches wide. The width was sized by my uh, Japanese back saw. That's like the longest tool that I own, so I needed it long enough to fit in there. And that, so then basically, that's where it determines one dimension. I have a plain till up top and a couple doors uh, for all nice. my chisels and stuff down. So, nice. Yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. And, um, it seems like everything in my shop has either been in the magazine or is going in the magazine in terms of, you know, you just, if you have to come up with a prop for, you know, drawing a cabinet maker's triangle on door parts. Well, you don't want to just rip four door parts and then just throw them into the corner. So it's like, okay, I'll make a real door. Well, if I have a door, I got to make a case for it to go in. <laughs> and if it has a case, it's going to have some drawers too. So, um, and then Wait, you're the one actually. You don't put drawers behind your doors. Is that right? That's the side of that <laughs> argument you fall on. Yes, I, I am morally opposed to drawers behind doors. It's like, what are you trying to hide there? So. No, this I, I'm I'm, I'm uh, more often putting drawers below doors. I think that's perfectly simple. So <laughs> this one uh, fundamentals uh, department I'm uh, photographing on doing cabinet maker's triangle has turned into a pair of um, wall cabinets for a bathroom. So that's what I've got in the shop right now. <laughs> Sounds like a good problem to have. Oh yeah. You know, it's. I mean, it's the same way. It's like when I made that that chisel cabinet. Really, the the entire reason I ended up starting on it, rather than the fact that I needed one, was was that I had. Um, I was doing this kind of design and, and, and figuring out how to do. Um, I'm going to be doing a table, and the table in the middle of it, I wanted like a river design down the center, so that it oh, kind nice. of and it and it goes all the way through. So it's not just an inlay; it's actually all three pieces are laminated together. Um, so I was coming up with just you know, how to do that the most, you know, efficient way. And and so I made a panel, and the panel was exactly the size of, like, a panel for a door that I needed. So I'm like, hmm, I know what I should use this for. <laughs> so so yeah, I ended I, up just using I finally got that yeah. to post, so you can see in the picture, if anyone's watching, that's that oh, awesome. piece he's going for. So now, Chris, since the home for those tables you're going to build is no longer there, uh, you're welcome to put one in my dining room. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm actually just going to use one of those as my own, my own desk now. So. Yeah, absolutely should. That's a really nice piece. I see, it looks like you got a really nice wide Japanese chisel there in the lower right hand corner. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of, couple of Japanese on the bottom there. That, that, the one in the, that you're pointing at, the, this, the wide one there, I think I picked that up at, uh, I don't remember where I got it, some flea market or something like that. And, you know, it's actually got the stamp of the guy who, you know, forged it. Yeah. And I think I bought it for like a couple of dollars. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris, I know you've talked about those chisels you have that I think a friend of your dad's made. Yes. Are oh, they really? hanging in the yard? No. And I'm still, I haven't figured out exactly what to do. Um, yeah, I've got three chisels that, that a, uh, a friend of our family's, he's a, he's a super, you know, a great blacksmith. And, um, he made when I was, I was, I don't know, I was a teenager, I guess. He made us three chisels out of, you know, it's pre-World War II steel and just, you know, phenomenal chisels. But wow. the problem is, is they're, they don't have, they don't have handles on them. They're straight, you know, just straight steel chisels. Um, and there's really not a good way for me to put handles on them the way that they're made. Um, so I'm actually going to have to make, I think what I'm going to do is just make like some, uh, horizontal, you know, pieces to go across and I'll probably put them on the door. I think what, is what, I'm end up. what about just a magnetic strip? I could. And you could embed the magnets in a piece of wood, like um, I think Benchcraft did. That's mm -hmm. where they started with. Yeah. I'm not gonna do it that way. Matter of fact, that's actually the way I typically store them. Is I've got a um, I've got a magnet bar on the wall that I typically keep those chisels on. All right. Well, there's not too much re to report for my shop this week. I managed to prime two sides of the treehouse. That was my most of my <laughs> weekend. But I'll tell you, the T111 is unbelievably porous. It took me two gallons to prime. Yeah, I bet. It's, it's eight by, it's eight by twenty, the area I had to prime. And I, it took every drop of two gallons to prime. <laughs> um, and that was the easy side off the deck. So now I have to set up scaffolding to prime and paint the rest. Mm -hmm. But, um, at least by the end of this summer, the kids will have a treehouse. There you go. T111's good stuff, um, but you're right. It's super porous. Yeah, it's, it's super porous, but it's, it's sheathing and siding in one, so. It's it's perfect for a treehouse. Yeah, it is. Um, but anyway, um, enough about our shops. Uh, w this is where we would normally talk about blog posts that have piqued our interest. But we'll simply tease everyone by saying that the newsletter is to come. 
and the newsletter will be mentioning uh, some really interesting posts. And if it's not yet, Chris, please add interesting posts to the newsletter before you publish it. No, it's actually, actually one of the things I was going to say about the newsletter is um, is I've already started getting some, some articles in from um, listeners and readers to add to that. So, uh, I mean, I've got a couple of things that some guys sent me. One of the guys sent me, he says, hey, would you mind sending me putting my cabinet in there? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's unreal. I'm like, wow, that's, that's really impressive. So. So uh, we're, we're getting some good good feedback to send out with later. So make sure if you haven't signed up for that, go online and sign up to it through uh, modernworkassociation.com. That, yeah, that's great. And if people want to submit things for the newsletter, that would be modernwoodworkersassociation at gmail.com. Be the yeah. address to send that to? That's fine. You can send to that one or High Rock or, yeah, that's, that's the easiest one. Okay. All right. Then uh, he's already with us, but let me formally introduce our guest tonight. It's Mr. Michael Pekovic who is the 2010 10-in shootout champion. Yes, that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> I think you, uh, you you schooled Matt doing with his hand-cut tenons, and I, I commend you for that, sir. Yeah, <laughs> never go into a dado blade fight with a back saw, right? <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a good idea yeah. as far as timing. And <laughs> no. for, for anyone who doesn't know, Mike, you, you're the art director for Fine Woodworking. Is that right? That's correct. And that that means that you make the magazine pretty with all the photos in the right direction. Uh, for the most part, we try to get them facing the right way. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm gonna start with just a little bit of, about you, Mike. So, how did you get into woodworking? If I I think I know a little bit about you. We've met a couple times. Yeah. You were woodworking before you started the magazine, right? Yes. Um. I, you know, I've been goofing around in my dad's garage, messing around with his tools for my whole life, but really, um. When I was supposed to be in art school and college, I stumbled into a wood shop in school and uh, realized that I could get college credit for goofing around with bandsaw making furniture. So, you know, I officially became a furniture making major in college uh, and was able to really learn most of the basics of milling lumber, cutting joinery, making furniture, trying some attempts at some innovative design. And, um, and with the aspiration of being possibly being a furniture maker, getting out of college, and then when reality kind of hit, I said, "Well, let's uh, why don't we go back to school for graphic design? I can really uh, get jobs doing that and actually pay." So, um, uh, out of college, I was been working for a graphic designer, and then came to find woodworking um, about 16 years ago, just to sort of bring my career full circle. So, still, you know, by definition, I'd say I'm a graphic designer by profession, but really, you know, I'm a continuing aspiring uh, woodworker, and as long as they, they let me hang out there and pay me to do something, I'm happy to hang out, goof around with this craft. It's pretty awesome. Okay. So, so then, Fine Woodworking was your first foray into journalism. You were doing graphic design and kind of art direction type stuff, but not... Yeah. Yeah, actually, I um, in college and then out of college, I sort of segued from uh, art into music. I was in a band. I was in a kind of a three-piece post-punk rock pre-grunge band on the West Coast. And uh, it's a very um, specific genre. It is. Yes, it's sort of. Yeah, it's right there. Um, and uh, anyway, so coming out of there, that's when I went back to school when uh, the second record label we were on actually went under, and the thought of you know going back again and cutting another demo shop. I was turning 29 and feeling as old as the hills, saying, I got to get a real job. So I uh, went back to graphic design school. And um, actually, when I got out, I got a job at Vans Shoes in California to make skateboard shoes mm -hmm. and snowboard boots and stuff. So um, it was really quite a bit different than what I'm doing at Fine Woodworking, but it was just enough of a portfolio to convince them that I could actually do magazine work as well. So, so any chance that you're going to bring the band back together to uh, be the entertainment at Fine Woodworking Live this coming year? <laughs> yeah, when you when when the build up is going on, live music in the background would be really cool. Okay, we can work that in. Actually, there's quite a few musicians around the uh, office, so um, I'm not even sure I put myself at the top of the heap. We had a little jam session last uh, last li live uh, Fine Woodworking Live there. That's true. Yeah, Ace is not afraid to break out the old six screen and play us a song. That's right. So, so speaking of uh, fine woodworking live, what what were you um, what you want to talk about? Uh, kind of what you're going to be doing there and teaching, and kind of a little bit about what you're going to be doing at Chicago. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, last time around, we basically uh, 
funneled everyone through six sort of you know, mandatory class schedule, and then the last day was uh, elective day. And that was easy, so I knew I was basically doing a, uh, shoot, I think I was doing like a sharpening class, um, like, you know, three times a day for two days, and I was just beat at the end of that. This time, it's all elective, so there's a lot more classes offered, and you can sign up for whatever you want on any day. And so instead of just the two classes I did last time, I think I, I put my name in the hat for three different classes. And depending on who signs up, I'm not sure if I'll be teaching one, two, or three of those. Um, I want to do something beyond just getting a hand plane sharp, sort of like here. It's based on a smoothing plane. Let's say you got a smoothing plane, you can get decent shadings, but you're still not exactly where you want to be with it. Maybe tricky woods give you uh, some problems, or maybe you're getting plane tracks you want to put up. Uh, so I want to do a hand um, uh, tune-up. I think I want to do something on, <clears throat> maybe it was on uh, like the details of uh, uh, some Crafts Furniture uh, details, and maybe actually cut a few joints during the class. I'd love to get my hands on it and actually do some woodworking during one of the demonstrations, because that's a lot of fun. Uh, there's an, another one in there as well. It, it slips my mind, but I think if you go to the website and somehow track down find woodworking line, Pretty sure there's a, a list of, of classes, and actually, I would honestly, I kind of wish I wasn't teaching because there's a lot of good guys there doing some really interesting things that um, I'm kind of bummed out that I get to go, but at the same time, I'm sort of stuck in the classroom and having to listen to myself talk instead of listening to Michael Fortune and giant pieces of ash or Steve Watt and mm. his stuff. So, uh, you guys were were there last year? Were you there? I, I know we hung out for dinner. I don't know how much of the show you guys were able to see. I was unfortunately only able to see uh, see Friday, um, but I was uh, there right. Chris, every day. Chris was there the whole time. It was great. I I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was uh, some really really great uh, and interesting classes. So I I very much enjoyed it. Matter of fact, you know, I've, it it's nice because I've done you know quite a few of the different woodworking shows with 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 everybody and stuff. And there's a few of them that that I've got. You know, we've had a booth at or something like that. Uh -huh. And it's so fun to get and sit and talk to people, but. I love sitting in the classes and just, you know, just learning with everybody else and just getting out there. And, you know, it's great sitting here talking to people. But at the same time, I want to be in the classes, too, and, and learning. So uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going up there again this year. Oh, good. Good. And it's a neat area. I mean, the whole sort of New Haven area is really cool. It should be a good venue. But, yeah, and last time around, we sort of had the unregimented schedule. We did get a lot of comments that, that folks getting together didn't really have a chance to sort of hang out and talk other so we're definitely going to give people a more opportunity to that and really for me sort of the surprise and it shouldn't have been but the thing I, I liked most about the show was getting to meet and talk to the guys because uh, it, it's a special kind of guy who who wants to uh, head out to a woodworking show that's their idea of good time it's like sitting watching someone sharpen a chisel <laughs> but you know if you can find that guy that they're usually pretty interesting to talk to so definitely yeah, especially for Especially yeah, for a weekend, you know, it's not like you're going to the working shows where you're going to walk through it and you spend an hour in there and you go back home. You know, you're spending the entire weekend just doing nothing but woodworking. So yeah, I mean, it takes some, some you get some dedication and uh, it's a great group, it really is. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with both of you. I've said this many times, but it's the community of these events that makes them so special. What you learn is is fantastic on its own right, but what really makes them special events that are worth traveling to is the community and the fact that you're spending a whole weekend with a bunch of other people who can share their passion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as a woodworker, as you know, we tend to be solitary folks. You know, we're sort of in our own shops, and every now and then we come up into the sunlight out from beneath our rocks, and it's like, wow, there's there's more of us. There's yeah. people like me out there. It's, it's just right. pretty cool. All right. Well, what prompted us to bring you on in the first place, Mike, was to talk about the new release of Fine Woodworking Best Workshops. So um, I'm going to now quiz you about your workshop, because I think okay. your workshop is featured in here it's actually somewhat similar to my own shop, and I think it's just the fundamentals of what you've done to convert your shop into a usable space are pretty universal to lots of people who have roughly finished shops. Um, so I'm going to jump, well, let me preface this. You had a, you have a detached garage that's uh, CMU blocks in the block yes. uh, construction, and you've you insulated the floor, the ceiling, and the walls as part of your renovation a few years ago. Yes. Um, I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole with technical stuff about the building, but 
a question I've always had since reading about your shop is, with the walls being just a single cinder block wide, yes. did you ha- beyond the fact that you've put two layers of insulation inside them and you've hung sheet rock inside them, so it's a nice finished wall, did you right. have to add any waterproofing in that layer? Do you get moisture coming through the block? Um, if it's coming through the block, it's not making it all the way into the shop. And I don't, I think it's the other way around. Um, I think I probably generate more moisture in the shop than I actually get migrating from the outside in. So, um, I know in the summertime, like in between heating and cooling seasons, the shop, it actually, and I don't have a uh, little humidity thing in here to check it out, but it feels like, you know, when it starts to get warm, it's kind of clammy warm. It feels a little humid, but I think it's just because this thing is sealed up really, really tight. Uh, there's just not a lot of moisture migration either way. And so I think just me working up the sweat in here, unfortunately, probably adds enough humidity to the air where it starts to get planted. But in terms of uh, moisture migration through the walls, um, I just, uh, so far it's not an issue. Obviously, okay. it's not going all the way through the drywall. Nothing's coming up for so. I'm assuming you didn't have any leaks through the walls before this started, so there should be no reason for leaks now. Right, yeah, other than where you can actually see gaps in daylight through the center block walls here and there. That was, uh, uh, theoretically, you can get some moisture there, but no, it's, it's, uh, that's been a non-issue. Okay. So. Now, one of the things that Yummy and I have got some show notes with different questions and stuff here that we were kind of bouncing to, but um, one of the things that just kind of popped in mind, and Yummy and I have both been up there to your shop, and one of the things I thought was one of the, the great things that you did was that, that you you raised the ceiling height in there, didn't you? Oh, geez, that was um, by far the best thing I did during the renovation was uh, was raise that because the, uh, the bottom of the um, the joists were about seven and a half feet off the ground. And then when I put the insulated floor in, it really brought it, you know, closer to seven feet and seven and a half. And uh, trying to move a sheet of plywood around or eight board around and trying right. to dodge the fluorescent lights hanging down from there, it's like, I, did it. I, I busted a few light bulbs in the past. So, uh, yeah, I just, and it seemed like such a daunting task because I'm not a home building kind of guy. Uh, so major construction work was really, really scary for me. But um, the, the good and bad thing about working down the hall with the guys at fine home building, they will talk you into trying anything. <laughs> oh, it's easy. No, 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 no. All you got to do. And so sure enough, there I was. And I just sort of, you know, I cut one tie, trimmed it to size. I hoisted it up two feet, nailed it in place with my cool pass load, you know, cordless framing nail that I got from Home Depot as a rental. And just went on down the line and in the afternoon, I raised my ceiling by two and that was like, you know, obviously something beyond what I figured my, my skills and capabilities were, but sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of just getting it done. So, yeah. yeah. So, now, so now you've gone from just over seven to just over nine feet? Yes. Actually, I think I, I probably raised it maybe 18 inches or so. I, I, I have a, a solid nine feet, so it's nice. Okay. I could lean uh, eight foot boards up, plywood is not a problem. And it just, it's a small shop. I mean, the outside dimensions, I think, are 20 by 20 to the outside. But, you know, then you have the center block wall plus four inches of insulation and drywall. And closer to, uh, closer to 18 and a half feet square on the inside, which is yeah. not big. But definitely the high ceiling gives it a, a bigger sense of space. It's real comfortable. When you talk about losing that, that space, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least my experience has been, I'm giving up. I'm giving up like six inches of yeah. wall in my installation, but it's tremendously worth it in terms of the benefit you get from having an insulated shop. So, you know, you, you, you steal a little bit, but it's, it's all a compromise. But to give up that little bit of, of footprint around the outside to have a shop that's actually warm and dry is well worth it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're trading a slightly larger two season shop for a slightly smaller four season shop. And that's a trade off you make any day. Cause my shop really before and after the, the remodel, if you look at the tools I own, my workbench, uh, my machinery, the layout, things didn't really change that much. It was basically exactly the same shop. And the, the thing that fundamentally changed was um, getting it insulated enough to heat um, and cool and also get plenty of light in here. And those two things, just to you know, make it a habitable space, I think that's um, you know, 90, 90% of what goes into the shop. Coming from California, I mean, everyone had their shop in a garage in California. So when I was looking for a house out here, I was just looking for a house with a two-car garage. 
found. I said, I'm set. That's my shop. We moved it in September. I said, this is nice. And then all of a sudden, like November and December came around. It's like, oh, this is like people are in the basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I live with that situation for, I don't know. Um, so probably maybe 10 or 12 years. I, I just dogged along with it. Of course, we had a big shop at work I was able to use. And, and quite frankly, I had sort of all my nice tools and sort of migrated to the uh, shop just to keep the rest off, uh, give me a chance to keep around during lunchtime and get some work done. With everything insulated, uh, now everything's back here, and I spend as much time out here as I can. Do you find you're more productive at work that you now that you're doing your woodworking at home? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. I mean, I used to get into work, you know, like an hour early and maybe stay an hour late. Uh, now I work, like, right on time, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, 5 o'clock, see you later, so... It seemed like I was at work a lot more, but I'm probably more productive now that I'm not uh, goofing around in the shop quite so much. But, but it's so, nice. Now, now your shop, of course, it, it is. It's a detached um, garage. Yeah. What do you think the advantage or disadvantages are of having? I mean, I think there's some obvious answers there, but uh, to having it attached, you know, where it's not attached to the to your house, and you you, you are you know trudging not far, but a few feet outside yeah. to it. I think the the biggest downside was just the challenges in getting it insulated. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, an attached garage, and you can just have at least one of your walls is insulated. You can sort of bargain. You can take advantage of the heat generated by your heating system in the house itself to partially heat the, your your shop. So where I think if you insulate an attached garage, you may be able to get by without supplemental heat, or maybe just some electric space heaters or something like that. Um, the upside is that obviously noise is not an issue. Um, uh, vibration, uh, I don't get yelled at to find running the planer at 10 o'clock at night or something. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and dust. I'm not tracking, you know, quite as much dust and sawdust and that kind of stuff into it now. So. And plus, there's, I like that physical separation. I like sort of looking out the, the window in my backyard and seeing my shop. And I like walking to the shop and unlocking the door. Um, it's, uh, I like how close it is, but it's just, far enough away to sort of create a different sense of space. So that, okay. said, uh, that said, neither of our cars in 16 years has ever seen the inside of a garage. I'll agree with that. My wife's car or mine has never seen the inside of a yeah. garage. I, don't know. I think, Chris, your wife used to get garage space, didn't she? We, we, uh, for, for a while, I had half the two-car garage as my shop, and the other half was her car. And, and finally, one day, I said, would we had to sit down and talk. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the house is yours, but uh, the car's got to go. I'm running seriously out of room. <laughs> so, so now I've, I've completely taken over the. You know, it's it's a shop now. But the problem that I have is just the exact same things you talked about. Is you know because it is in the house, it's there's two issues. You know, it's one is a lot of times I'm I'm working in there late at night or something and just noise i mean the kids bedrooms are straight above above the shop and then okay we also we we tend to use we tend to come through the house through the garage we don't go through the front door most of the time we open the garage door up and walk okay. in the house that way so right. i'm constantly having to clean because otherwise dust is always tracked inside the house so okay. uh, so i have to keep a clean path all the time it, it makes me keep the shop cleaner i guess <laughs> Now, do you have to worry too much about uh, heating or insulation where you're at? Does it get all that cold? You know, it. it, it you know, Atlanta, it does get cold. It, it's not like, <laughs> of course, I'm there, there, but it, it, but it does. You know, we we still get cold. Um, we really don't get. You know, I'm from up in North Carolina mountains, and it definitely gets. We had a ton of snow and ice. But Atlanta, yes, it does. But at the same time, I mean. I've got a little electric, one of those little electric heaters that I put in there. The shop's fine. It's just that. It's, okay. I don't, I don't need any. Matter of fact, the most difficult thing I have is the summertime. It's just, oh, it's just okay. that's, that's the, that's the brutal part. But wintertime, it's no issue. Now, Mike, I've got kind of a split between you both. I have an attached garage in my shop, but when I was renovating rooms, I eliminated the door, the internal passageway door to the garage. So the only okay. way I can get there is by the external garage door. And as lame as this sounds, in the dead of winter, the hot 12 feet I need to walk underneath a soffit from the house to the garage, if it's wet and nasty outside, it's sometimes enough to keep me out of the shop. 
does the warm, dry shop beckoning you, is that enough to entice you out of the house? Or do you get the same thing where you're looking at the 18 inches of snow between your back door and the shop door? Does that, does that scare you away sometimes? Oh, no. Well, if there's that much snow on the ground, it's probably a snow day and the kids are home from school. So I've got my wife. She's getting driven crazy by the kids. My daughter is doing her thing, blasting her music. And there's enough going on where, yeah, that is that sort of that beacon in the night, you know, that little <laughs> trudge through the snow. It's, it's a nice little separation there. So I like that. It's part of the romance. I like the idea, you know, the first thing I shovel that probably shouldn't be this, but the first thing I shovel is the path from the back door to the to my shop. There's nothing wrong with that. Um. So as as far as um as as far as upgrades, uh, what did you do as far as electrical and, and upgrades in your shop? Uh, when we we um after we'd been out here for a while, one of the first things I did was uh, put an electrical panel uh, breaker box in the shop and have it wired for my two twenty breaker, and then install just a three uh, eight foot um, uh, fluorescent fixtures. Which uh, really wasn't adequate. It was enough, you know. Basically, it's better than a bare light bulb, but it was still a pretty uh, daunting working situation. Now, at at that time, Mike, was the inside just like gray cinder block, or was it at yeah. least painted white? No, it was gray, except okay. for except for a quarter of one wall that I tried to paint white. And you talk about, you know, your your plywood being porous. Try <laughs> try painting a cinder block wall. It's just like it won't stop. You know? So I think I. You know, I burned through one of those five-gallon buckets of paint, and, have, and oh. it looks sort of like a uh, sort of it, look, it resembles sort of a third-world prison cell for the most part. <laughs> it's just not pretty. So, yeah, so yeah. that was. Um, and actually, when I, uh, uh, but it, as uncomfortable as my shop was when I first moved out here, all I had was just one uh, regular one ten outlet. So all my big equipment was pretty much unusable. So. That's what actually prompted me to get more into handfuls because the only one of my machines that actually worked was my 14-inch bandsaw. Uh, all my other stuff, joiner, planer, table saw, all the stuff I learned on, that was out of commission. So um, I learned pretty quick that just a bandsaw and uh, some hand tools, you could sort of get moderately straight flat lumber and build something on it. It took a lot longer to do, but I'm sort of more proud of those pieces than a lot of other pieces that I knocked out on machinery you know, half the time. So. And ever since then, you know, obviously I love my machines and I'm back on 220, but uh, my hand tool collection certainly hasn't shrunk in the meantime. Yeah, I'm looking at all those planes behind you. You seem to I like know. them too. Is that sad? I should maybe like move this, you know. <laughs> so, anyway. No, I'm yeah, showing off my sewing machine. Back. You can show off your hand planes. Okay, sorry. So, um, on, no, I was just going to say, um, you know, the last time we were up, you had you had some cabinets or I can't remember exactly what you are building, but you had that shop slammed full of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. you know, a lot of tools and, and a lot of stuff in there. How, how important is, is it in your shop to have uh, some of your tools, you know, mobile to where you can move and ship things around to reconfigure the shop to, to the project that you're working on? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. Actually, I'm, my stuff is not all that mobile. Um, that was yeah, what you're referring to was a, a really one of the, the bigger built-in projects that I've done. A lot of sheet goods, a lot of boxes stacked up all over the place. Um, what I do keep mobile is I have a couple carts where if I have a couple projects going on, I'll try to load those on the mobile cart so at least I can sort of push those things out of the way. And, uh, really, the thing for me I've learned is to uh, keep the shop really clean. Um, the minute things start to get cluttered up, you start to lose... Um, you know, storage space and tabletops once they get cluttered, the workbenches, it becomes unworkable. So, um, probably the main way I've dealt with working in a smaller shop is just, uh, you know, I'm always just putting tools away in between different tasks rather than just waiting for a whole project. Okay. No, that's, and that's, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's, you can never keep, keep everything at, I know sometimes I feel like I clean up my shop more than I actually make anything <laughs> in it, but it, it makes a huge difference when you're actually trying to work and, you have space and you know where the tools are and you uh, it's, yeah. it's a delight to have room for your project and be able to reach your tools uh, it sounds so basic yeah. but it's, it's it makes all the difference in the world yeah. uh, all right well yeah, and, and uh, one of the reasons oh go ahead no no uh, by all means you're the guest finish oh i was just going to say and this doesn't really pertain to an average shop but we do do a lot of photography, a lot of video work in the shop. So one of the main reasons I have some mobile machines to move around is just because 
Um, basically, the wall you see behind me, it looks kind of nice, and that's it's sort of what the other three walls of the shop are, are just sort of cluttered wreck. This is like I always make sure when we're shooting, oh, it's a nice window in the background with the tools. And uh, so I do have some stuff on wheels just to get out of the way, just to get cameras in and that kind of stuff. But um, sort of along those lines, Chris, in terms of, of making do in a smaller space, it's sort of giving up on the notion that of the perfect shop, the idea that every tool is equally accessible um, whenever you need it. And the bottom line, the, the, the hump that I finally got over is I kind of faced the fact that, look, some of my stuff, like a lathe, I'm on it maybe once every six months touring some drawer pulls or something like that. So guess what? I'm going to pile some stuff in front of it. And when I need to move it to use it, I'll get it out of the way. So, you know, the notion that I'm just not going to be able to access everything I want. So let me, what are my priorities? What tools am I using on a regular basis that I need to get to all the time? The rest of the stuff, if something's in the way, so be it. I can find that. Good point. Yeah, I think that's true of almost everyone, is that you never have the space to reach all your stuff. Um, but w one thing we ask of most of our guests is a series of, of five questions. And uh, we've already asked you the first one in terms of how you got into woodworking. Okay. But I want to, we're going to close this out by going through the, the remaining four questions. So, um, Chris, you want to jump in with the first question? Um, sure. Yeah. And so, so our I, I first didn't mean to throw you off there. On that is, <laughs> you, you threw me in. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> what's the question? Uh, what, what's, what's your favorite tool? You know, we, we do a little bit on our show, sort of like all-time favorite tool of the week, you know, and I'm always picking something, you know, I'm always trying to be a, a bit of a philosopher when we ask that question. It'll be something like blue tape, or it'll be, you know, my broom, or, you know, um, I don't know, if push came to shove, uh, my shop. There you go. That's, that's, <laughs> I was I actually thinking it. of a book. <laughs> you know what? That's, that's, that's a great on. answer. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, the shop is sort of the easy out. If we, if we really say, you know, pick a tool, um, probably my uh, number four Lee Nielsen smoothing plane because uh, it does a good job. I use it a lot. It's a nice tool. It also has um, some sentimental value in terms of uh, the way they got it, um, the person that gave it to me. So uh, I think a lot of my the tools that I really like and I use all the time, um, usually there's some other reason other than just the performance Itself. My dad, um, he always, when he learned that I, I like woodworking and hand tools, man, every yard sale and flea market he went to and he found an old tool, he'd buy it and mail it to me. He's like, ah, oh, thanks, Dad. I had like, you know, 27 rabbit planes or, you know, all these broken, rusty tools. So, you know, for a while it was like, man, it's sort of like, what am I doing with all these? But I still have a few of those things around. You know, to be able to pick up a tool, you know, reminds me of dad or uh, someone close to me. That's a really Oh, that's point. that's great of, you know, tools, I think. And you know, it's funny. We always ask this that that question as far as what's your favorite tool, and and it, it is such a because it, I think if you ask any of us weekly, just like you guys, what our favorite tool, it's going to change. It constantly changes yeah. things. Like you know, it's it's what I'm what I'm using, and uh, you know, it's so hard just to pick one, but because we do have emotional connections or or, or just like to use certain tools. So, um, but, what's your favorite tool this week, Chris? <laughs> this week, um, let's see what is my favorite tool this week. Well, I, I I guess this week I would have to say my table saw, and I never say my table saw because <laughs> I use my table saw, but I don't primarily focus on my table saw. Sure. I use my table saw to do the rough work, and then, but you know, with with this little box and stuff, I've actually used my table saw for almost all of it. I mean, I pulled out some shoulder planes to to clean some stuff up, but uh, I haven't done a whole lot of a lot of my hand tool stuff lately, especially with that end grain. It's hard to, <laughs> you know, it's a little more difficult to do with. So, right. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, if you were to uh, ask me for this week, um, probably my favorite tool this week uh, is my biscuit joiner, which is probably like one of the more really? lowly considered tools in the shop. Like people yeah. say, is that even woodworking? It's like, oh yeah, biscuit joiner is <laughs> great. But, uh, it's got a yeah. place. Yeah, and I even for furniture making, I was telling you, I was making these bathroom cabinets, and they have a fixed shelf and a divider for the doors, and you get a little spacer block and a biscuit joiner, you knock those suckers out, and then get those in there. Yeah, it's one of those fun little tools. Again, I never think of my biscuit joiner as my favorite tool. Every now and then, you know, <laughs> some tool comes in handy for the for the right task, uh, 
And whether it's a pencil sharpener or a biscuit joiner or a table saw, it's like glad I have it. Well, it's like they <laughs> laughed at me the day I told them that my uh, my drill press was my favorite tool. <laughs> like, a drill press? Yeah, I love my drill press. I use it. <laughs> I use it for a sander more than I do drilling, but I still use it. <laughs> Mike, who has influenced you the most in your woodwork? Um, you know, I guess in short, um, wow, that's a great question. I mean, in short, I'd say Fine Woodworking Magazine um, in that uh, when I was, so I did a lot of woodworking in college, and then uh, I sort of had this career in a band where I wasn't doing any woodworking, moving from apartment to apartment. All my shop stuff was in storage. And so um, my only connection to woodworking at that point in time was Fine Woodworking Magazine. I read it um, just because it connected me to the craft and it sort of maintained that identity of, yeah, this is what I am. This is what I do. I'm not doing it now, but this is really still the, uh, a big part of, you know, why I'm passionate about this craft. And then obviously when I came to the magazine, it was like, oh, my God, I'm a Fine Woodworking Magazine. Um, it took six months before I even got up the courage to step out in the shop and, and cut a board. Uh, I was so intimidated. And, and then beyond that, um, you know, most of the editors go out, uh, in an author, someone like Chris Bexper or any awesome woodworker will write an article for the magazine and an editor will be assigned to the story and they'll typically go out and photograph the article. But as an art director, every now and then I get to sort of weasel my way into a photo shoot. And if I get a chance to visit Garrett or Chris Bexford's shop, I'm the first thing I'm doing, I'm opening up all the drawers in their shop. I'm looking through their scrap <laughs> piles. You know, I'm just like looking at everything. Can what's this? How do you do this? And um, so just that, you know, that experience of uh, meeting these guys, poking around, seeing what they're doing, seeing they're just, they're just guys. They're just guys in shops. And, um, um, one of the biggest things I learned from watching these guys is how very slow, not, I mean, they're not inefficient, but they're very meticulous and certain tasks, they really take their time and, uh, you know, are very careful in their work. And um, that was a big lesson for me. You know, you sort of bang through a dovetail joint and be all gappy. It's like, oh man, I can't cut dovetails. And then you watch someone who's really, really good at it and how meticulous and precise they are. It's like, oh, well, let me give this another shot and let me kind of slow down and, and pay attention this time around. That was a, a huge learning experience. Just my job as an art director, basically, I get manuscripts um, that I have to read over five times to sort of get an understanding of, of what's there. And then basically my job is to take that information and organize it in such a way that hopefully you can pick it up, pick up the magazine, scan through it. And in just a 30-second scan of a six-page article, you say, oh, I get it. And then maybe you'll you'll read the captions for the photographs and you'll say, oh, I get it, and to a different level. And then maybe two years later, when you actually want to do a project and read through it all the way through, you get a deeper level of information. So um, as long as I subscribe to Fine Woodworking, I honestly say I never actually read the whole thing cover to cover. And it wasn't until I got to the magazine working there that, you know, in order to, there's a, a great notion where in order to explain something simply, you have to understand the people. So mm-hmm. I've been just sort of forced by um, my profession to have to sit down and slog through everything from bent laminations to veneering to vacuum pressing bags to carving bonds on feet. That sounds know. really rough having to have learned all those things. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, yeah, not that I've, I've ever put all that knowledge to use, but uh, it's certainly deepened my understanding and, and more than understanding and appreciation for, man, it's a, it's a, such a broad ocean of uh, information, of knowledge, of skills necessary to be competent in this craft. And it's very humbling. So, you know, I, I, I just try to narrow my focus, you know, and just try my best to do basic work and try to do it to a certain level of expertise without any uh, any pretensions or, or notions of greatness just because I've seen too many people doing awesome stuff. So that's okay. Just, you know, kiss my hands. I think it is. that That's a that's a valuable lesson because there is so much out there. And I think that is just reflected just in the different niches of what woodworkers do in terms of guys who are, you know, tons of veneer work or related work or scroll sewing or whatever. There's so many different divergent paths that all fall within woodworking. Absolutely, yeah. 
where one group could even sneer at the other and say that's not really woodworking, but it is all woodworking, and it's too much to be a master of it all. So there's, I think there's a lot of value in figuring out what part you want to focus on and just learn that simple part the best you can because you'll spread yourself too thin trying to know everything about it. Yeah, exactly. All right, so the next question is, what was your biggest stumbling block and uh, how could it have been avoided in your work? <sighs> biggest stumbling block? Give me an example. Would you like my biggest mistake or, or well, just, something? No, just, just more so, you know, what, was there that moment that you go, you know, Hey, oh, yeah. I got it. You, yeah. you know, just kind of that aha moment. And, and Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, absolutely. It was um, one of my first photo shoots for the magazine. I headed out to uh, Mendocino to uh, direct the photo shoot for James Brown the last time he was on the cover of the magazine. And uh, he was doing an article on making a little canvas as part of the little bio piece he did. And one of the instructors there, David Welter, who's a great woodworker, um, he basically was the very first person who put a sharp hand plane in my hands. And up until that time, I didn't get the whole hand. You guys are crazy. You know, this is all, this is a waste of time. And he gave me a plane and I gave it a try. It's like, wow, okay, got it. Now, I, now at least I know uh, what I'm after here and what they can do. If I ever get it this sharp, you know, now I have an expectation of this degree. So that probably was, you know, one of the very first you know, pushes down that that hill, you know, which hasn't stopped in terms of getting more and more use and getting sharp and seeing what, you know, what these old tools tuned up in the right way can really do and why these guys did such fantastic work with these mm. rather primitive weapons. And that's a, and I think that's common, that, you know, as far as the, you know, what is sharp. I think, you know, when if you've never been around a hand plane or chisels or any of that stuff and, and you pick one up that's from Home Depot and pick up a cheap chisel in there and feel the edge of it, Oh, it's sharp. It feels yeah. sharp. Yeah. You know, it would cut me if I'd stabbed myself with it, you know. <laughs> That's about all it would cut, but. But you don't realize what really sharp is, you know, and I think that's one of the great things about having events and things around where you've got, you know, the Lee Nelson guys travel around, you've got all these other great shows and stuff where, you know, you've got people there with hand planes that are really sharp and, and yeah. people can actually get to just to feel what that feels like. And yeah, it's a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And as much as I love my Lee Nielsen and, and Barrett Cross hand planes, usually when I demonstrate or teach, I'm pulling out my old Stanley Bailey with a hawk iron in it because I don't want the first tool, the first sharp hand plane to someone to use to be a $300 hand plane and right. somehow equate the performance of this plane with the fact that they have to go out and spend 300 bucks. Let me just ask you a question about that to get a little tangential because we've, we've kind of talked about this subject before. If you're, if you're starting off, and you, you're interested in woodworking, but you're not sure what that really tuned up, sharpened hand plane feels like. Are you better off going the route of getting a, a Stanley and making it work or, or jumping into that, that first $300 plane so that now you have a plane that works and then you can, then you have a, a control to judge against and then you can go and buy a Stanley and, and learn to make it work? Yeah. I mean, great question. I think the problem with, with picking up a you know a flea market Stanley with an aftermarket blade, it's a pretty big stumbling block. Now that there's so many good quality and even you know less expensive good quality planes on the market now, um, you know Wood River has a good quality plane, even the Veritas planes. It used to be okay, I'm spending thirty bucks plus a forty dollar iron for Stanley, or I'm paying two hundred and fifty bucks for Lee Nielsen. That was like a big gap, but now. Um, you know, you can get a, a good hand plane. I don't know, probably for maybe a hundred bucks on up. And the last thing I want is for someone to get an old plane that's sort of a beater. There's something fundamentally wrong with it that is going to keep them from getting good results with it. And you start throwing good after that, bad, and you still never quite get there. So um, now, I guess my my short answer is get a good quality new plane because it's five minutes to get sharp, and you're making shapes. And then from there, you know, if you're a romantic and you've got some old tools and you want to tune them up going, you know, that that's kind of a different route. And I understand the uh, passions involved there. But you're really looking to um, get up and running with hand tools, really make something. Um, I'd say probably start with tools, uh, even if it costs a little bit more out of pocket up front. I think it's going to save you time and frustration. And there's no learning curve to spending money. There's a learning curve to making the plane work. That's right. The learning curve is getting it from the from the car or the mailbox to your shop. Yeah. Uh, 
that's, that's why I have no office. <laughs> uh, is this my question or yours, Chris? I've lost track. Go for it. All right. So I think it's yours, buddy. All right. This is our last question. Okay. Um, how has the internet influenced your work? Um, I think the, the internet for me, um, it's a tremendous resource for, uh, design ideas for inspiration. Um, uh, for instance, I was just, it's like you go and Google medieval furniture and boom, there's like, I'm finding this guy a slideshow who went to, you know, I don't know, Bavaria or, or Germany or something like that. And here I am scrolling through dozens of medieval German wooden cabinets and you see these awesome wrought iron hinges and this incredible woodwork. And uh, so for me, um, as a woodworker who really uh, puts a lot of emphasis on design, um, uh, that's probably one, one of the main things. Oh, check it out. See? So actually, um, what I was really interested in is I, I really wanted to make some Hobbit furniture. So I figured <laughs> that uh, sort of like English medieval style furniture was probably the basis for most of the set decorators for the Hobbit Lord of the Rings movies. So I was sort of looking uh, for original sources for that. Oh, maybe my cabin will show up. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, it doesn't show. I think it, did you call it Hobbit furniture? Uh, what I call it? I think I did call it like a. Oh, there it is. There, it's like the fourth row down, second from the right. That little wall cabinet. This one. Yeah, that one right there. There you go. I found FindWoodworking.com. There it is. The Hobbit covered. Uh, and those hinges and that little leaf nice. pull. They they were made by a blacksmith uh, friend of mine that I met at Peter's Valley Craft Center. He's a very interesting guy. He's, he specializes in making knives and spears and this really crazy stuff. It's like, can you make some hobbit hinges for me? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no problem. Me, that's great. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Mike. We've taken up uh, enough of your evening. Um, as we wrap this up, is there anything you'd like to promote or share with everyone? Uh, no, absolutely not. I just thought... <laughs> No, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. I enjoy your shows and uh, enjoy your company. This has been really fun. Well, well thank you. We've, we've really enjoyed having you on. And if Mike's not going to promote himself, I will. Uh, <laughs> you can certainly look at all his work in every issue of Fine Woodworking. Uh, as we said before, what brought this interview on was the recent Fine Woodworking Best Workshops book, which is all about lots of different workshop projects. It's a good primer on all facets of workshop design. And to be a little self-promotional, uh, the last three posts I've had on penultimatewoodshop.com have been my long overdue shop tour of my shop. So uh, today, the 8th, the video finally posted. So if you go to penultimatewoodshop.com and look for Mike Pekovic, you can see uh, the notes and the video that we shot when we visited his shop uh, in uh, February of last year. Awesome. Hey, can I get one of your guys' uh, blue t-shirts by any chance? Hey, we'll get Absolutely. you a blue t-shirt. Most All right. Awesome. I'll, I'll wear it with pride. It'll come your way. Okay. Uh, extra large, please. Yeah. Extra large. Yeah. Got it. You got it. All right. All right. Um, next week's topic, or in two weeks' topic, the next topic, I believe, is going to be Bruce Wang of Microjig. But I'm saying that unconfirmed because uh, Tom, who's not here tonight, is our liaison with Bruce. So if Bruce isn't here in two weeks, I apologize, but he is on the board to be coming up, and I believe he'll be there in two weeks. Um, so if not, we'll make something up. Yeah, we'll just talk about shop design again. Uh, so that's about it for, it for the show. If you're missing us already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Just search for Modern Woodworkers Association. Once you're subscribed, you'll be sure never to miss an exciting episode. When you're in iTunes, please leave us a five-star rating. It helps our rank so that others can find us more easily. And if you want to find out more about the Modern Woodworkers Association, be sure to visit modernwoodworkersassociation.com or follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national. You can like the MWA on Facebook or circle Modern Woodworkers Association on Google+. And while you're there, join the MWA Google Plus community for project sharing discussion and loads of woodworking banter. Now you are Mr. Atkins. I am Chris Atkins of High Rock Woodworking, and you can find me on Twitter at <laughs> HighRockWW and, yeah, about 50 other places beyond just name. And I have, I'm Diami Plotky of PenultimateWoodshop.com. I'm on Twitter at Diami Plotky, D-Y-A-M-I-P-L-O-T-K-E. And uh, thank you, thanks everyone for listening. 